I'm looking forward to seeing Bob Johns here with us next week. Uh, Bob is one of God's choice servants. We'll be happy to see him. It's a little bit of a we were anticipating that Bob and Lydia would both be here uh, in March. They were scheduled to come, and then Lydia was turned away at the border due to a visa problem. Uh, at this point in time, they are trying to figure out what to do about that. Uh, this, this was supposed to be their retirement tour, their uh, goodbye to you, we're retiring to South America tour. Uh, but now, because of her visa problems, they actually may not be retiring so I'm not sure what next week is going to look like. We were going to uh, congratulate them and really celebrate their retirement, but if they're not retiring, that would kind of be harsh. So we're not going to do that. Uh, well, we might. I'm going to try and find out more information. Scott suggested I just have two cards. Some of you signed that wonderful card in the foyer. Two cards in my pocket, one that says congratulations on your retirement and one that says get back to work. But I don't know that I will do that. Um, so we'll all be in for a surprise next week, except what we will not be surprised by is Bob's humble uh, graciousness as he comes to serve us, and he'll, he'll be preaching that um, morning next week too. So we look forward to that. Uh, in 1811, a number of years ago, 1811, James Madison was president, and his administration received a letter, and inside the envelope with the letter was a check for $5. Um, apparently, while serving, in the, uh, serving the country in some way, the letter writer who was a doctor had defrauded the government, and he felt guilty about this, so he sent, to repay his theft, a $5 check to the government. And now, the Treasury Department didn't know what to do with this money, so they put it in a fund for donations like that, and since its existence in 1811, this fund which has become known as the Conscience Fund, has collected $6.7 million. Uh, Almost all the gifts to the Conscience Fund are anonymous. They sometimes come from estates. They sometimes come from pastors and priests who hear deathbed confessions. Uh, People who have cheated on their taxes or stolen from the government, they use the Conscience Fund to alleviate their guilt, to make amends. The smallest donation they ever received was for six cents. Uh, Somebody repaid the government because he had reused a three-cent stamp twice illegally, so he paid the government back. And the the largest donation was in 1990 for $155,052, probably a member of Congress except they have no conscience, so we'll move on. Now, most of the donations, it's not kind. Most of the donations have come with some sort of note. Um, I'm going to read a couple of the notes to you. So here's one. This check for $1,300 is to make restitution of tools, leave days, and other things I stole while, while I was in the Navy from 62 to 67. Here's another one. About eight years ago, I took from a railroad station an item worth about $25, and this has been on my conscience since, so I'm enclosing $50 to clear my conscience. One person sent, mailed a dime in an envelope with this note. It said, this afternoon I found the enclosed coin on the pavement. Found a dime, mailed it into the government. Cost them 22 cents. Uh, Here's another letter. Back in 1966, I worked for the government and retired that year. My conscience hurts. Because I stole government property, two metal panel office dividers with plastic upper portion. I ask your forgiveness and say I'm extremely sorry for this rotten act. Enclosed is a $50 bill to cover costs. Parenthesis, the material was secondhand. 
Then he says, may God and you forgive me. Now here's my favorite letter. Dear Internal Revenue Service, I have not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. And close, find a cashier's check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. (laughs) That is not the way to respond to your conscience. So if you've been around for the last weeks, you know that we are talking about what the Bible teaches about your conscience. Our normal practice, of course, is to move uh, through books of the Bible. We walk through them. We're going to return to that at the end of the summer. Uh, this morning I was uh, reviewing my notes, getting ready for today, and Luke said, are you getting ready for your sermon? I said, yes. He said, let me guess. It's about love from 1 John. I said, no, we've moved on from 1 John. I said, this t- today we're going to talk about your conscience. And he said, oh, from where in the Bible? I said, well, we're going to look at a bunch of different passages. He said, a bunch of different passages? That does not sound like a book of the Bible to me. (laughs) Carefully trained my children. Our normal practice is to move through books of the Bible systematically and carefully. But today we're going to look at a bunch of different passages. Uh, Your conscience, uh, do you remember where we have been so far? Uh, This is not a topic that Christians talk about very much, the conscience. Uh, Your conscience, of course, is that internal witness that testifies to you about what you believe about right and wrong. It, It tells you whether or not you are living up to your own standards. Your conscience is God's good gift to you. It's, it's like uh, um, the nerves in your fingertips that make you pull back from a hot stove. Your conscience is supposed to pull you back from doing something that is wrong. Your conscience can be broken. We spent some time talking about that. The worst way that your conscience can be broken is that your conscience can be seared. You ignore it so much that you don't even listen. You don't even hear your conscience anymore. It's completely insensitive. The goal for followers of Jesus, of course, is to have a clear conscience. And in order to have a clear conscience, your conscience has to be cleansed and it has to be calibrated. Last week you talked about the cleansing of your consciences. Some of you need to push back against oversensitive conscience and oversensitive conscience and remind it what God's word says. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you need to push back against your conscience. Today we're going to talk about this second part of having a clear conscience. We're going to talk about calibrating your conscience. Uh, My goal is to answer three basic questions. Number one, what is calibrating your conscience? Two, why do you want to calibrate your conscience? And third, how do you calibrate your conscience? So what does it mean to calibrate it? Why do you need to do it? And how do you do it? Before we answer the the first of those uh, three questions, it occurred to me this week that I have not spent any time telling you that you need to obey your conscience. I haven't shown that to you from the Bible, at least. We're actually not used to talking this way. We we don't uh, speak this way very often. We usually talk about uh, obeying the Bible, right, or obeying God. You need to obey the Bible. You need to obey God. That's the way we're used to talking But obeying your conscience is important, especially in areas where followers of Jesus don't agree with each other about what the Bible teaches. Uh, We gather on Sunday mornings. We worship the Lord Jesus together. He calls us together. We gather in obedience to his command. You're here because the Lord Jesus has commanded you to assemble with his people on a regular basis. And we're in agreement about his lordship. We say together, Jesus is Lord. We agree together that he's the risen Savior. He's the one who died for us and rose again and is coming back. 
And we have obeyed the Bible together in believing its own testimony about the Lord Jesus. But there are other things. Those are the things we agree about and many others. But there are other things, secondary things, tertiary things, that we don't agree about. Should I give you some examples? Do you remember what they are? Uh, Well, can you come up with a list? I'm sure. Uh, Celebrating Halloween. Where in the Bible would I go to find a verse about celebrating Halloween? Or what to do on Sundays. Listening to secular music. Watching mixed martial arts for entertainment. Public school versus private school versus private Christian school versus homeschooling. Uh, Drinking alcohol in moderation, smoking cigars, body piercings, Christian hip-hop, which has nothing to do with Easter. Um, Having uh, multiple services or multiple sites for a a congregation. How many uh, children a Christian couple should have. Where's that verse? So it's just a partial list. And for these items, we admonish one another, you need to obey your conscience. In fact, It's a sin not to obey your conscience. Uh, I want to show that to you from the Bible. Look on the note sheet there. There is Romans 14, 22, and 23. In a couple weeks, we're going to start walking carefully through that passage of Scripture. It's about these controversial issues that uh, that the Romans were dividing over in Paul's day. What to eat, what to drink, how to treat Sundays. Paul tells the church, have convictions about these things but love one another in the midst of your disagreements. And look what he says in verses 22. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Now he's not saying to be silent about it. He's saying don't argue about it. Don't make it an issue. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. If you cannot in good conscience eat something, don't eat it because you're violating your conscience. And if you violate your conscience, you have sin. Or 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 11, it says, we're going to come back to this passage again too. Here the issue is eating meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. Uh, In Corinth in those days, the butcher shops were attached to uh, uh, an idol temple. They would sacrifice the meat to the idol, and then they would take it to the butcher shop portion of the building, and they'd sell the meat there. Can Christians eat that meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Some believers with a great history of idolatry said, no, we can't do that. That would break my, uh, violate my conscience. But verse 9 says, here's Paul talking, be careful, however, That the exercise of your rights, those of you who do feel free to eat the meat, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. The destruction that he's talking about here is the destruction that comes because you sin in violation of your conscience. You You break your conscience, you disobey your conscience, and because of that, that itself is a sin. So your general default should be to follow your conscience. If you're in the habit of ignoring your conscience, it's bad, it will be seared. We live in a sinful world, and your conscience is affected by that brokenness. You need to obey your conscience, but your conscience is not completely reliable, so we need to talk about calibrating your conscience. So what does it mean to calibrate your conscience? We're going to get to those three questions. Let's start with the first one. 
calibrating your conscience basically means going beneath the surface of your conscience and bringing what you believe about right and wrong into conformity with God's standards. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about calibrating your conscience. We're actually going to go beneath your conscience. So remember, your conscience testifies to you about what you believe about right and wrong. So calibrating your conscience starts with bringing what you believe about right and wrong into conformity with God's standards. So uh, God has written on every human heart this knowledge of right and wrong. Sin affects your heart. Some of what you believe about right and wrong conforms to God's own standards. Some of it does not. So by calibrating your conscience, we are actually talking about changing your convictions, changing what you believe about right and wrong. Uh, and, and you can do that by adding to your convictions or subtracting from your convictions. Not that hard to understand that. Now, we're not talking here about sinning against your conscience but changing your convictions that undergird your conscience. I want to make that distinction because sometimes your conscience can be slow to catch up with the convictions that are supposed to serve your conscience. And sometimes calibrating your conscience might feel like sinning against your conscience, but actually you have changed your convictions and thus your conscience is different. Does that make sense? Here's an illustration that might help. Um, I started typing on a keyboard about 35 years ago. And when I uh, sat down, um, I did not start with my letter, my fingers on the home row. That's not how I learned how to type. I learned to type the old-fashioned way, hunt and peck. That's how I started. And uh, I still type that way. I don't have to do much hunting anymore because I pretty much know where the letters are, but I still do a lot of pecking. Um, if I were in a typing class, someone would snap my knuckles with a ruler, I'm sure. Now, I know in my mind that it would be more efficient for me to type the, the right way, the proper way, the, the old home row way. I, I know that. And over the years, I've tried to teach myself to do it. I, take, I, 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 I uh, have used computer programs. I've forced myself to practice. I just can't do it. I, I can... I, I'm not slow in my hunting and packing. I can move pretty fast. And I just could not, cannot get the... There's muscle memory going on, right? Muscle memory that allows me to hunt and peck so rapidly that it's too slow for me to relearn how to type. So I have convictions about typing, but I have muscle memory that makes it very hard for me to live up to my convictions. So your conscience is a little bit like that muscle memory. You may change your convictions, but your conscience is sometimes slow. Uh, it, it might trouble you in, in, when you try to change your convictions. Nevertheless, that's what the, the calibrating work that we're after. We're after bringing what you believe about right and wrong into conformity with God's standards. Now, why would you want to do that? If it's hard to do, why would you want to do that? That's the second question we want to answer. Why should we calibrate our consciences. Um, I have four reasons. The first one is a, should be somewhat obvious. Um, well, following Jesus means that we're, we want to conform to Jesus' standards. Following Jesus faithfully means that we want to conform to Jesus' standards. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to teach ourselves from the scriptures about right and wrong so that we're in conformity with Jesus. 
Now, Christine, a few moments ago, read from 1 Thessalonians 4. Will you turn me there in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 4? This is the first of the bunch of passages that we're going to look at. 1 Thessalonians 4. And uh, we're not going to read the whole thing again, but I just want to point out a couple things uh, to you in this passage. We could spend a long time going through this passage of Scripture, but uh, just a couple of things. Verse 1, Paul says... Brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, and that's what you're doing. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So as followers of Jesus, what happens to us? We learn how to live lives that please God. Things about us change. Some of you should be very encouraged by the fact that even though the Thessalonians had had a long way to go, he says, I, I want you to do this more and more. He still, the apostle, found room to say to them, Wow, you are living a life that is pleasing God. I'm so happy for you. So encouraged that you're living this life that is pleasing God. Keep going, but it's good. You should live in this life that pleases God. Some of you, with oversensitive consciences, you need to hear that it is possible to say to a believer who is not perfect that they're living lives, you are living a life that pleases God. God. Sometimes I talk to people and I say things like, so tell me, how, how are you growing as a, as a Christian? How, how has God been at work in your life? And, and it's most of the time people say to me things like, well, I'm not very patient or my self-control is really just bad. I have no self-control. And I, I, did, you, did you hear what I asked you? How has God been at work in your life to, to, to produce growth? And many people, their default answer is all they see in their lives is failure. All they see is ways that they're not conforming to Jesus' image. Can I tell you that the Apostle Paul, remember? The Apostle Paul in the church of Thessalonica found reasons among these people to celebrate God's grace in their lives. You are growing. You're living a life that is pleasing God. It is possible to do that, even though you have a lot of progress to make. Now, here's one of the ways, one of the areas where followers of Jesus add to their convictions. How do followers of Jesus add to their convictions in the area of sexual purity? Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, what does that look like? What does avoiding sexual immorality look like? It looks like this. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, what do people who do not know God act like? People who do not know God act out of passionate lust, and they do not control their bodies. But knowing Jesus means your convictions about sexual immorality are different. So we calibrate our consciences to bring our convictions in conformity with Jesus' standards. Verse 9 talks about a different set of standards. Verse 9 says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. God himself teaches you this. That loving one another is essential. That loving one another is good and wise and beautiful and is in conformity with who he is. Following Jesus faithfully means conforming to his standards. That's one reason why we calibrate our consciences. Right? Here's a second reason. We calibrate our consciences because we want to enjoy all of God's good gifts. We want to enjoy all of God's 
good gifts. Now, do you remember, uh, there's this passage that we looked at before from 1 Timothy 4 about people who have seared consciences. What do people with seared consciences do? What does it look like? Verse 3 tells us, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. There are good gifts to be received from God. Good gifts. Marriage is a good gift. Food is a good gift. Uh, Remember in Corinth they were struggling with eating meat. You can abstain from eating meat for a variety of reasons. It is certainly not a sin to be a vegetarian or to be a vegan. Just don't post about it on Facebook all the time. But that's not, they're not sinful choices. They're not sinful choices. But if you think that God commands you to avoid eating meat, you are missing out on one of God's good gifts. Don't eat it. Don't eat it if it's going to violate your conscience. Do not violate your conscience. But maybe this is an area where your conscience could be calibrated. Now I have a verse to show you and I'm a little hesitant to do so. It's about another one of God's good gifts. So with fear and trembling, let's look at Psalm 104, verse 15. Psalm 104 is a praise psalm. It celebrates God's good gifts as creator. Think about all the things that he has given us. Verse 14, he makes grass grow for the cattle. That's awesome. And plants for people to cultivate, bringing food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts. Oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. So here's this verse about wine. This week week I listened to a news story about vaccines. So there was a group of Christians, they were arguing about whether or not the government has a right to mandate that their children be vaccinated in violation of their conscience. That was a news story. And it occurred to me, I thought to myself, is it safer to talk about vaccines on Facebook or alcohol in a Baptist church? Which is safer? (laughs) Here's this verse. What do we do with this verse? One of God's good gifts. What has God done? He's He's made grass to grow for the cattle, plants for people, wine. Now, um, here's one of God's good gifts that I don't particularly enjoy. Uh, by that, I don't mean that I, don't, I dislike it. I just don't drink it. And I'm happy not to. There's certainly not a command in this verse to drink wine. That's certainly not what this is. It's not a command. I don't enjoy all of God's good gifts. I think green beans are a good gift from God. I don't receive them with joy. And I don't feel bad about that. I don't drink alcohol. I don't think it would be a sin if I did. I don't think it's a sin if you do, but I don't. Uh, do you know why Baptists have historically uh, um, been prohibitionists, especially Southern Baptists? Well, the story starts, as most stories in the South do, with the Civil War. So during the Civil War, uh, the Confederate armies were particularly poorly uh, equipped. They often did not have access to healthy drinking water, but they did have access to alcohol. And the, the alcohol kills germs. So during the war, if you were thirsty and you wanted to drink something that wasn't going to make you sick because there were germs in the water, you could drink alcohol. And some of those soldiers drank a lot of alcohol. 
And they came home alcoholics. So preachers went to war in the South in particular against alcohol. And the Bible helped because the Bible is full of warnings about the foolishness of drunkenness. Over and over again, the Bible talks about how destructive and foolish drunkenness is. And these preachers preached and preached and preached against alcohol. There was even a constitutional amendment uh, against it. My great-great-grandfather was a faithful Presbyterian and a temperance man. He used to go to all these conventions. I still have the ribbons he has uh, from going to the International Order of General Templars meetings. Uh, Did you know that drinking in America did not reach pre-prohibition levels until the 1970s? Fifty years. Uh, You should think about calibrating your conscience when it comes to receiving God's good gifts. Don't violate your conscience. Do not violate your conscience. But perhaps here's an area where your conscience can be calibrated. Let's move on. Number three. Number three. Followers of Jesus, we we calibrate our consciences in order to eliminate what competes with Jesus for loyalty in our hearts. To eliminate uh, what competes with Jesus for loyalty. So we've been talking about subtracting from your conscience. Now let's talk about adding to your conscience. Jesus calls us to love him supremely. To love him more than we love all of our family members. To love him more than anything else. Brothers and sisters, there are things in your life, likely in your life, that you do with your time and your money and your energy and your attention that compete with Jesus for loyalty. And your conscience should trouble you about that. If there are hobbies that you have that draw your attention from Jesus, that you love more than you love him, your conscience should bother you. I'm going to give an example about this. In his book about conscience, Andy Nacelli writes about his obsession with sports. When he was a teenager, he got up first thing in the morning. He was up before everyone else. He ran out, got the newspaper, and he read and devoured the sports pages. He played basketball, baseball, football, and hockey while he was in high school. He had huge collections of sports cards. There were sports posters on his walls, subscriptions to multiple sports magazines. That's what he lived and breathed and ate was sports. None of those things are inherently sinful. Nacelli, though, he says, I I reached a point in my life when I realized that sports was taking up too much of my time and attention, and I could not follow Jesus faithfully and devote that much time and energy to sports. Now, that may not be the case with you. Mature believers disagree about this. That's why you need to obey your conscience. Maybe your devotion to sports is one of the ways that you serve other people. It brings you into contact with neighbors and opens doors for service to them that you wouldn't ordinarily have. That's great. But you should think about this. You should wrestle in your life with the extra things that take you away from your family or take you away from the church or take you away from Jesus himself. Adding to your conscience. Now, here's a fourth reason to calibrate your conscience. Number four. Calibrate your conscience in order to free yourself to serve others. To free yourself to serve others. Now I want you to take your, uh, your Bibles and turn me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's to the left of where we were in 1 Thessalonians 4. But I want to look at this well-known passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This 
what we come to when we come to 1 Corinthians 9 is Paul's making a very extended argument about rights and conscience. And I just want to pull one little thread out of that argument that's in this uh, paragraph that I want to read. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Talking about freeing yourself to serve others. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now notice here Paul's goal. You can underline it. He, he mentions it several times. What does Paul want to do? He wants to win people for the sake of the gospel. That is what is driving his decisions here. He wants to win people for Christ's sake. And in order to achieve that goal, he flexes, doesn't he? Paul can live under the requirements of the Old Testament law. That's fine. No pork? Great. Or he cannot. He, he, he doesn't have to. He can live under the commands of the Old Testament law to win Jews, but he doesn't have to if he is trying to win Gentiles to the gospel. Now, he flexes, but notice there are ways that he doesn't flex. He does not say, to the adulterers, I became like an adulterer to win adulterers. Okay, he does not say that. Um, he, he, he's under the law of Christ. That's why he can't flex that way. But he flexes to serve others. If in the providence of God you go overseas with the intention of representing Jesus to people in other cultures, or if you go into Lancaster City with the intention of representing Jesus to people of other cultures, you're going to have to flex. There will be rules that you follow that you can't anymore and rules that you have to follow there that you have to. Um, J.D. Crowley has been a missionary in Cambodia most of his life. And in one of the houses that he lived in, there was a beautiful mango tree in the yard. Uh, he watched the mangoes bl uh, bloom and then uh, uh, the little fruits start to grow and they grew and grew and they were just getting perfect ready to harvest and he was really looking forward to the mangoes in his tree. One day he was sitting in his living room looking out his window and he watched as neighbor after neighbor came by his house, walked into his yard, picked his mangoes, ate them and walked away. Now, what is happening? You know what's happening. Stealing. Right? They are stealing his mangoes. But in that culture, they were not stealing. And if Crowley had gone out to complain, he would have not been guilty of defending his property. He would have been guilty of stinginess for not sharing his fruit. All right? If you're in Lancaster County, if you're in Lancaster County, don't take fruit from someone else's trees. Right? That would be stealing. You will have a hard time sharing the good news of Jesus with people if you steal their fruit. Okay? That's just the way it is. If you're in Cambodia, though, don't complain if someone is taking fruit from your tree because that would be stingy. And you're going to have a hard time telling people about the generosity of Jesus if you're stingy with your mangoes. Flex. 
It takes wisdom. It takes maturity to figure out when and how to flex. But a calibrated conscience gives you the freedom to serve others. If you fly to Cambodia to serve and all you see is stealing, you're not going to be effective in winning people for the gospel. See how that works? Uh, Calibrate your conscience so that you have the freedom to serve others. Now, let's spend a few minutes talking about this last question. How... How do you calibrate your conscience? How do you calibrate your conscience? I want to suggest three principles to remember. Number one, you cannot calibrate another person's conscience. You cannot calibrate another person's conscience. All right, we were in 1 Corinthians 9. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 8, back just one uh, chapter. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. Remember, Paul is talking about food sacrifice to idols. Verse 4, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. That's what we know. For even, verse 5, if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, people name gods of all kinds, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ from whom all things came and through whom we live. So people name all kinds of gods, but there's, we know there's really only one God. But not everyone, verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial, uh, sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it, and no better if we do. Now, what's he saying here? Well, what does Paul know about eating meat sacrificed to idols? He knows, verse 4, he tells us, he knows that an idol is nothing and there's no god but one. He says, I know that. Some of his readers know that. But not everyone knows that. Well, they might know it up here, but they don't know it down here. They don't, they don't feel it. They might know it, but they don't, don't feel it. And Paul is apparently ready to let them remain in their lack of knowledge. Isn't that odd? You should think about this the next time you read through 1 Corinthians. Look in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. How many times Paul rebukes the Corinthians by saying to them, Don't you know? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that you were bought with a price? Don't you know? Don't you know? He's trying to influence them by, by talking to them about what they should know. But in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, No, we know things, but not everybody does. What happened to Paul? Why in 1 Corinthians 8 isn't he saying to people, Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Why isn't he pushing them? There are some, re- some issues over which Paul pushes people to know things and to live out of their knowledge, and there's some issues where Paul says, eh, I know this, but not everybody does. What's the difference? Well, I think he tells us, verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat it, no better if we do. If what you don't know is going to hurt you, Paul will tell you. He's going to educate you. If it doesn't bring you closer to God or move you away from God, Paul is willing to let you be free in your conscience and, to a certain extent, in your ignorance. Do you see that? Even Paul, with his greater knowledge here, does not 
does not take it upon himself to calibrate the conscience of his readers. In secondary matters, he allowed for the, this, this diversity of conscience. You know, one of the challenges that occurred to me as I, we're going through this, one of the challenges that I uh, anticipate having when we talk about secondary matters is it would be really easy for me to stand up here and say, here's what all Christians know about all these things. Do you want to celebrate Halloween? I'll tell you. Do you want to do it on Sundays? I'll tell you. Do you want to know whether you can drink alcohol in moderation? I'll tell you. Do you want to know if I think that you could get a tattoo? I'll tell you. Piercing, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in. I'm going to tell you everything I know. That's not my responsibility, though. If there is an issue that will push you closer to God uh, or, or draw you away from God, then on the authority of God's word, whoever stands in this pulpit better speak. But if it's not something that's going to push you closer to God or draw you away from God, it's not my responsibility. I don't have the authority to try to calibrate your conscience. So I'm going to try not to do that. We'll see if I succeed. You can tell me in a few weeks. So, uh, we're not called to calibrate another person's conscience. Number two, about uh, how do you calibrate your conscience. Number two, God through his word calibrates your conscience. God through his word calibrates your conscience. So, calibrating your conscience is bringing your convictions into conformity with God's standards. And his standards are here in his word. So we carefully, we wisely pick up the scriptures and find our convictions here. Now I mentioned a few uh, weeks ago, but the best example of this, I wrote down the reference, you can look it up later, is in Acts chapter 10, Peter the Apostle. Peter the Apostle has been a faithful Jew his whole life up to the point in Acts chapter 10. He has keep and kosher laws. He keeps all the laws of Moses as to regarding what he eats, and he does not eat unclean food until God in a vision gave him a dream and said, uh, showed him all these unclean animals and said to him, Peter, pick it up and take up a knife. Eat those. Eat, eat, eat. Eat these animals. And Peter said, no, I have never done that. It's not wise to try to be holier than God is. So uh, God corrected him again. Take it up and eat. This whole vision, he's he's trying to move Peter along. He's trying to calibrate Peter's conscience. Do you know why he wants to calibrate Peter's conscience? He wants to calibrate Peter's conscience because God is going to send Peter to a bunch of Gentiles to tell them the gospel. And after he tells them the gospel, they're going to believe and they're going to feed him dinner and sausages on the menu. Calibrate your conscience so that you're free to serve others. Who calibrates conscience? God, through his word, calibrates your conscience. Now, number three, principle number three. We help each other, help one another, calibrate the conscience. Help one another, calibrate the conscience. Now, this might sound like a contradiction to number one. It's it's not really. You can't force another person to calibrate their conscience, to change their conscience, but you can help them by explaining why you do what you do. What do followers of Jesus do when they have different convictions and both of them have verses in the Bible to match their convictions? The Bible doesn't contradict itself, but our interpretations of it often do. So what do we do about that? How do we we figure that out? Well, we help each other. We give freedom to one another. We don't judge one another. We allow the Spirit to work in one another's lives, but we help one another. Just think how fruitful it was. Can you imagine this, how much they could have fought with each other, but how fruitful it was for Jews and Gentiles to be together in one church and have to figure out how to plan a church potluck? 
right? What food are we bringing and how are we going to eat it? I don't know. Let's figure it out. What does it have to do with following Jesus? How stretching, how transformative that is. It's wonderful. Do you remember uh, when we started a few weeks ago, I read this wonderful quote from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in Great Britain during World War II and then in the years following that. Um, He uh, was one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. And early in his ministry, early in his ministry, he preached a sermon in which he criticized people for uh, men for wearing striped socks and he criticized people for taking daily baths and uh, talked about the evil of the wireless apparatus in your house. He's not talking about your Wi-Fi either, your radio. That was his problem. He had a problem with your radio. That was the beginning of his ministry. You know, towards the end of his life, one of Martin Lloyd-Jones' favorite thing to do was watch professional wrestling on television with his grandchildren. Now, how does that happen? How do do you go from from radio as the airwaves of the devil to let's watch some WWF, right? How do you do that? He was British. It wasn't that. But uh, how how do you do that? Well, having grandkids helps. Trust me, have grandchildren. They'll challenge all your convictions. It's wonderful. I suspect, actually, that the answer lies even deeper in the fact that the conscience of Lloyd-Jones grew it, it developed because of the word. It pushed him to flex a little bit for the sake of his grandkids, for the sake of love of them. And the word pushed him a little bit to get him closer to Jesus. That's the goal. That's where all of us are headed. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we thank you for your word and the clarity that it brings us in the things that we're not clear about. Lord, as we have gathered together, we have gathered together to sing and to give and to listen to your word, uh, read and, and study it together. We're thankful to the to you for the unity that we have in the Lord Jesus, he who is our risen Savior and the coming King. Uh, We gather in his name and for his sake, gladly do we do so. And yet, Lord, we're talking about these issues. What do we do when we disagree with each other? Father, I pray that you would implant within us a desire to become more like the Lord Jesus in our convictions about right and wrong. That, as we sang a few minutes ago, the mind of Christ my Savior would be formed in us that the beauty of Christ would be evident in us, that his peace and his mercy would be part of who we are, that his wisdom would, would flow from us. Change our convictions, bring them into conformity f- with your own standards so that we're free to love one another, to serve one another, to share the good news of the Lord Jesus with others. Make us as a congregation a people that is uh, very free from, from judging one another and very rich in how we love one another. Do these things. Lord, as we have looked into your word, may because of our reading of it this morning, we revere you. May we love you. May we be more skilled in discipling those that you have entrusted into our care. 
And may we turn from the empty things of this world so that we might love our Lord supremely. It's in his name that we ask these things, saying, Amen. We're going to sing once again as we prepare to take communion together. I invite you to stand as we do so.